Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Morning, church. I'd like to play a game with you this morning, and I know you just got comfortable, but I'd like for you to go ahead and stand back up. Stand back up for a minute. I know you're groaning, and none of you like me right now, but I do have a prize for the winner, so bear with me, bear with me. I have pulled up five things that are actually for sale on Amazon, and you are going to guess how much they cost. And if you get it right, you get to keep on standing. If you get it wrong, you have to sit down, and we're gonna use the honor system, so don't even think about lying in church. Got it? All on the same page? Okay, here we go. Object number one, you can buy a bag of 1,500 live ladybugs. Is that A, 499, B, 4 1499C, 2499, or D3499. Get your answer. Get your answer in your head. Everybody got it? All right, here we go. And the answer is 3499. Whoa! <laughs> that did not take long. We are a church full of losers. Okay. <laughs> All right. Wow. Better luck next time, you guys. All right, item number two. <laughs> item number two, a gigantic Swiss army knife. Is this A, $10,000, B, $1,000, C, $500, or D, $50? Get your answer in your head. Get your answer in your head. All right, here we go. And the answer is A, $10,000. Do we have anybody left? All right, we've got two left. Two left. This is going to be good. Here we go. <laughs> item number three. Item number three. It's a tiny home. Okay, is it A, $26,900, B, 27, C, 28, or D, $29,900? Get your answer in your head, gentlemen. Answer in your head. All right, here we go. And the answer is B, 27. Oh, they're both down. Oh, no. No. Well, we can't have that. Stand back up. We'll do one more. Stand back up. Stand back up. Good try. Okay, okay. Uh, let's go to item number four. Item number four. A baby mop. Is this great or what? I need one of these. Okay. This is A, $24.99, B, $29.99, C, $34.99, or D, $39.99. Got your answer in your head, gentlemen. All right, here we go. And the answer is D, $39.99. Oh, we have a winner, Nelly. Hey, Nelly Dog, can I hand you, can you take that back there? Nice. He didn't even drop it. It should be good to go. All right, well done. I have one more just for fun. You guys want to do it? Okay, item number five, item number five. Here's a very rare Christy Matthews and baseball card. This was supposed to weed out the winner, so I don't have options, but get your number in your head, how much you think it costs. Get your number. Everybody, let's act like we're in children's church. Drum roll, please. Drum roll, come on, here we go. And the answer is... $409,422.59, but don't worry, it has free shipping. Everything's okay. <laughs> Very good. Thanks for playing. Here's my question for you this morning. How much is Jesus worth? More specifically, how much is Jesus worth to you? Because that's the question at the heart of our text with today in John chapter 12. But before we dive into John chapter 12, we have to take a look at where we've been. When you're reading the Bible, it's always important to take in the context, the text that comes before your text, the text that comes afterwards, get the whole picture of what's going on. So right before this, in John chapter 11, Steve preached last week from this story where Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. And Jesus could have been there to stop it, but he wasn't. 
And so then when, when Jesus gets to Lazarus's house, Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, they come running out to him and they said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says to Martha, this powerful answer in verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And then Jesus backs up that claim by raising Lazarus from the dead. It's this incredible story. Well, needless to say, when a dead guy comes back to life, that sends some shockwaves throughout the community because these people knew Lazarus. They knew this was not just a gimmick. They knew Lazarus was actually dead. They watched it happen. And now they knew that Lazarus was actually alive and that Jesus was responsible. And if this Jesus guy has some kind of power over death, then he is a force to be reckoned with. And so we see in the rest of John chapter 11 the ripple effects of Jesus' raising of Lazarus. Verses 45 through 48 kind of describes what happens in the community. It says, Therefore many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Now notice, in their efforts to stop and discredit Jesus, they never dispute the fact that Jesus' miracles are authentic. That's incredibly important. Rather, they're just worried that Jesus is going to cause so much of a ruckus and so many people are going to believe in him that his followers are going to start an uprising and Rome is going to come squelch it and smash him with their iron fist. And they're not wrong. That's a valid concern. Because just a few decades after this, in the year AD 70, Jerusalem did get a little too unruly and a little too rebellious and Rome came and sacked the city and burned the temple just like the religious leaders had feared. But... Instead of actually listening to Jesus or checking out his miracles or his claims for themselves, the religious leaders just hatch a plan to, to silence Jesus and to preserve their own power. Verses 49 through 53. It says, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And now, so from this point forward, the gospel of John turns. The whole thing kind of hinges on this little text right here because from this moment forward, now the wheels are in motion and Jesus is headed toward the cross. And so we see that in this great miracle where he raised Lazarus from the dead, in reversing Lazarus' death, Jesus actually sealed his own death. In emptying Lazarus' tomb, he cemented his fate in his own tomb. John has been hinting at this fact all along, that Jesus is going to be a substitute. In fact, in the mind of Caiaphas, the high priest, as he's opposing Jesus, he says, listen, we got to kill this Jesus guy so the Romans won't kill us. He wants Jesus to be a substitute for the nation of Israel. And yet God's plan of substitution was much higher and greater than Caiaphas's devious plan of substitution because God says, no, 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 I'm going to kill my son so that I don't have to kill you, buddy. And Jesus is going to be a substitute not just for the nation of Israel, but for all of humanity for all of time. And we know this. First Peter chapter two says, he himself bore our sins, yours, mine, the ones from yesterday, today, the ones from tomorrow. 
and his body on the cross. First Peter chapter three says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He's a substitute. And, and if, we, if you've had eyes to see and ears to hear, then John has actually been hinting at this substitutionary death all along in this gospel story. From the very first chapter in John chapter one, verse 39 or 29, when John the Baptist cried out, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now here we are in John chapter 11. And there's hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem for the Passover. Passover is the feast where they will make sacrifices for their sin. And they're wondering, where's Jesus? Verses 56 and 57 says they kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Now the crowds and the religious leaders are looking for Jesus because that they think that he's on a campaign to start a revolution. And yet Jesus knows he's on his way to Jerusalem to die as the sacrificial lamb of God. And yet everyone misses it. Everyone, that is, except for one woman. Look what this woman does. It's Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Look what she does as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. John chapter 12, verses one through eight. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So as we dive in, let's circle back to our original question. How much is Jesus worth to you? Because to Mary, in this little story, we can see that Jesus was worth quite a lot to her. She seems to recognize that Jesus is on his way to die. And so Mary anoints him with this expensive perfume. The other gospels tell us from an alabaster jar, just like the song that we just sang. But Judas, Judas doesn't like this. He objects and he says, no, the money should have been used for the poor. But Jesus instructs him that although caring for the poor is very important, we just prayed for it. As followers of Jesus, worship always comes first. The primary thing that we are called to as Christians is worship. The first and greatest command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And everything, everything, everything else flows from our worship. We are to be worshipers of Jesus first and foremost. So let me ask you again, how much is Jesus worth to you? Because that's what worship is. Worthship, ascribing great worth to something or someone, telling them of how much value they are in your life. So how much is Jesus worth to you? Because this text, on at least one level, is an example of worship. And I think specifically we see three characteristics of the kind of worship we're supposed to have in this text, the worship that gives great worth to Jesus. I think the first thing we see is that Mary's example calls us to humiliating worship. 
Way back in first century Palestine, water was often really hard to come by, and so bathing was a rare privilege. It was a lot like middle school church camp. And so, if you can't take a bath, if you can't bathe, if you can't shower very often, the next best thing, I guess, is just to lather on a whole lot of perfume. And that's what they would do. And so Mary anointing Jesus here with some oil, some perfume, that's no big deal. But she goes way overboard. She goes way past what is normal. For starters, it was fairly common to anoint the head of an honored guest at a banquet, but to anoint his feet too? That's getting a little too friendly. Uh, besides, dealing with someone's feet, that, that's servant's work. And then to let her hair down, that would have been totally improper in that day and age for a woman in public. And then, and then to wipe his feet with her hair, well, that's just downright scandalous. People are raising their eyebrows, they're blushing. I'm sure her family is horrified. They're horrifically embarrassed. It's this utterly humiliating display. And yet while everybody else is focusing on Mary's total lack of decency and dignity, Mary, Mary, is just focused on Jesus. It reminds me of this story in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 6, where King David, he's just so enthralled, so entranced with the presence of God that he's dancing before the Lord in worship. And David's wife, Michael, looked out a window and she saw him. She saw this display that David's just leaping around and he's dancing, and it says that she despised him in her heart. She was embarrassed. She's humiliated. And so later on, when David gets back, she confronts him about it because she's mad. What would people think, seeing the king act like that? And David says, I, I, I was dancing before the Lord. And I will get even more undignified than this. Can you say that? Can you, can you say that? I mean, when is the last time you were so moved to worship that you didn't care what anybody around you thought? How much is Jesus worth to you? Is he worth so much that you are willing to humiliate and embarrass yourself in front of the eyes of the world to express your love for him? Because here's the deal. The people at this banquet who are looking down on Mary, they're followers of Jesus. To the people in that room with Mary and, and to a lot of the world around us, they're not gonna be all that bothered by the fact that you put your faith in Jesus. They might be okay with it. But they'll probably think, okay, yeah, that's fine for you, but, but just, just don't, don't get crazy with it, like all things in moderation, right? And yet caution and moderation are the enemy of devotion. If the way you worship makes complete sense to the world, then your worship probably is not radical enough. So how much is Jesus worth to you? Mary's example calls us to humiliating worship. Secondly, she calls us to responsive worship. You see, worship is never a conversation that we start. We are entering in on a conversation that's already going. True worship is always responding to what God has already said or what God has already done, and that's what Mary's doing here. She's responding to what Jesus has done out of deep gratitude for him raising her brother from the dead. And she's also responding to what Jesus has said because it doesn't seem like all the other people around have really been listening and understanding when Jesus has said over and over again that he's going to die, but it seems like Mary was paying attention. Perhaps she knows here that Jesus is on his way to his death, and so she responds, wanting to express her devotion before it's too late. Now, if you and I were there in this house as first century Jews looking on at this scene, my guess is we probably would have thought that Judas was right. Because Mary, she's just being outlandish. To be honest, she's being a little bit awkward. And Judas seems reasonable here. I mean, shouldn't this money go to the poor? 
But we only look on the outward appearance, don't we? The Lord looks on the heart. And so Jesus looks at their hearts, and it's as if he's saying, no, 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 Mary has seen my glory. Mary has tasted my grace. Mary has heard my truth, and she's responding in lavish love, and she's right. Leave her alone, Judas. You haven't been listening. You have no idea what's going on here. And so Jesus allows Mary to give him this very intimate, very tender act of love as a servant to her king. And that's what Jesus is, after all. You might know that when we call Jesus the Christ, that's not his last name. <laughs> that's a title. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And the Messiah was this deliverer that God promised would come and, and rescue his people, the Jews. And so when we say Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus, the Messiah, the promised deliverer from God. And those words, Christ in Greek and, or, yeah, Christ in Greek and Messiah in Hebrew, it means anointed one. That's what it means. In those days, to be anointed with oil was to be set aside for a special purpose. So prophets were anointed and priests were anointed and, and kings were anointed. And so as Mary does this in a very real, real way, she is anointing Jesus as prophet, as priest, as king. She is acknowledging that he is the Messiah, the Christ, and she is setting him aside for a very special purpose. And just what purpose is that? His death. Because in 24 hours, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem and the crowds are going to shout, Hosanna, which means save us. And then a few days after that, those very same crowds are going to shout, crucify him. And they will. Jesus will be nailed to the cross where he will die and they will have to eventually take him down so fast that they won't have time to properly anoint his body for burial. So this will have to do this little splash of perfume ahead of time. Mary's been listening, and so she responds. So let me ask you, have you been listening? Oh, we've, we've talked about this before, that we believe the two fundamental questions of discipleship, of following Jesus are, what has God been saying to you lately, and how are you responding? Hearing and obeying. Because make no mistake, God has been speaking. He has been working. He always is. So what has God been saying to you lately? What has he been giving you? How's he been convicting you or disciplining you or providing for you or encouraging you? Take note of those things and let your response of obedience be an act of worship that is an outflow of how God is already working and speaking in your life. Mary shows us that worship is humiliating, worship is responsive, and finally, that worship is costly. Worship is costly. And we're back to our question again. How much is Jesus worth to you? Because we know that an expensive gift is the evidence of lavish love, right? That's why jewelry stores tell you that you should spend two months' salary on an engagement ring, okay? Uh, when I was in college, I met my first love, and uh, she was beautiful. She's a real head-turner, all, all curvy, and man, I just, I, I fell head over heels, and so I bought her. And I, I loved that motorcycle. I think we've got a picture. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> That was college, Luke. I think we've got a few more pictures there. And this was, this was bad. I was living the bachelor life, and it was not a good thing. The, the Lord transforms lives. He really does. I think there's one more there. Yeah. And that mustache? I worked on that mustache for like six or eight weeks, and you still couldn't hardly see it. And so the morning I took that picture, I had to darken it with Sharpie. That's true. <laughs> And I was living the bachelor dream. I had the mullet, the motorcycle, the whole nine yards. College was fun. But then, but then, but then, I met my true love. And man, as I fell head over heels for Rebecca Moyers, I made a previously unthinkable decision. And I cut my mullet. You're welcome. 
I sold my motorcycle and I bought a diamond ring. And by God's grace, and I have no idea why she made this terrible mistake, the girl of my dreams said yes. And so to this day, Rebecca is wearing my motorcycle on her finger as a proof of my love. The greater love hath no man than this than to cut his hair and to lay down his bike for his girl, right? <laughs> and was it worth it? Of course it was. I didn't think twice. Yeah, the gift was expensive, but the cost was worth it because of the great worth of the one to whom the gift was given. Yeah, and Mary says, John says, yeah, that Mary's gift to Jesus, it was costly. But you know what? I bet she wasn't thinking about that. John says that this, this perfume was, was pure nard. Nard is, is an expensive herb that is grown in the Himalayas. It wouldn't have been easy to get now, and especially back then. John says that this one pint of nard was worth 300 denarii. Now, one denarius was about the average day's wages for the average laborer. So this pint of perfume is worth a whole year's wages. It's expensive. It was probably maybe a family heirloom that had been passed down from generation to generation. I bet they used to tell the story to the grandkids about how the perfume came to be in the family. And maybe this was even Mary's dowry. As far as we can tell, Mary was not married. And in those days, a bride had to come with a bride price to pay the groom's family. So if you wanted to have a socially acceptable family, you needed to have a little bit of a, bit of a nest egg to contribute there. So maybe, just maybe, Mary is pouring out her hope at a future of a societally acceptable marriage. Maybe she's pouring it out at Jesus' feet, saying that he is better than any of that. Wow. And she didn't just pour out a few drops. The other gospels tell us that she broke the jar. She poured out the whole thing. Now listen, I'm not telling you you have to give a year's salary to the church today. <laughs> but I'm also not telling you not to. <laughs> Because this lavish gift displays how much Jesus is worth to Mary. And as she gets down on her knees and she lets down her hair and she begins to wipe his feet, the people around her are horrified, they're embarrassed, they're blushing, they're judging her based on this scandalous display. And yet Mary is focused on only one thing because her king is in the room. And, and the others in the room, they didn't understand this extravagance. That's why Judas objects to it. And we know why Judas objects. John tells us it's because he was a thief. He was worldly. His heart was full of greed. Ironically, we know what Judas thought Jesus was worth because just a few days later, he would betray the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. Just some petty cash. So who are you in this scene? Are you Judas? Been hanging around, Jesus? You're religious. You look good on the outside. You're respectable, prudent, responsible. You're a provider. You have a reputation for doing what's right. And yet, inwardly, your heart of worship is cautious and calloused and calculated and cold. Or are you like Mary, beholding the infinite worth of Jesus and willing to lay down any cost at his feet in order to express your love for him? Again, I'm reminded of a story from the life of King David. At one time, King David wanted to buy a, a property from this guy named Arauna so that he could build an altar there and make a sacrifice of worship to God. And, and Arauna says, hey, no way, King. I'm not letting you buy this. You can take it. Consider it a present. In fact, I'll give you all the supplies you need to build the altar. I'll give you the oxen for the sacrifice, the whole nine yards. It's a gift from me. But David says back to him, no, I insist on paying the full price. I will not sacrifice to the Lord something that has cost me nothing. 
So let me ask you, what has worship cost you lately? What have you given up as an act of worship to God? Because make no mistake, the more that worship costs you, the more it displays the worthiness of your king, just how much Jesus is worth. When worship costs you your convenience, when worship costs you your opinions about the best way to do things, when worship costs you even the style you like or the aesthetic you prefer, that's part of what Paul's talking about, I think, when he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What has worship cost you lately? Mary shows us that worship should be humiliating and responsive and costly. How much is Jesus worth to you? The degree to which your worship reflects those three traits will be your answer to that question. That's a lot to ask. So is Jesus really worth it? Well, Scripture says emphatically, yes, he is worship, worth it. And, and here's why, because yes, on one level, this story is an example of worship, but on an even deeper level, this story is a pointer to the cross. Mary's gift was ultimately just a reflection of the greater gift to come, a gift not from us to Jesus, but from Jesus to us, a gift from Jesus that was humiliating in nature, that was responsive to the will of the Father, and that was costly to the highest degree. And why did he give such a gift? Because he thought you were worth it. And because of that, because of his substitutionary death on your behalf that has proven his love, because of his resurrection to new life that has proven his power, because of his ascension to the right hand of the Father that has proven his continuing reign, now we can join in with the angels of Revelation chapter 5 and say, worthy, worth it, is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Is Jesus worth it? The answer is most definitely yes. And if the answer is yes, then as the hymn writer Isaac Watts said, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. And John tells us here in verse three that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, uh, several months ago, our family had the virus, and so I actually haven't been able to smell anything since Christmas, which isn't a bad deal when you're living in a house full of diapers, know what I mean? <laughs> I don't miss it a bit. It's all fine. It's all good. <laughs> but research shows that our sense of smell is actually the sense that is most closely linked with our memories. And you know this. There's one time when Rebecca and I were dating, and we dated long distance, and she forgot her jacket. She left it in my car. And so in the weeks in between then, between the times we got to see each other, I would just occasionally go and just like smell that jacket, you know? And like the memories would all come flooding back to me. And before you judge me for being a creep, you, you guys do it too, right? You know that. Yeah, the smell of fresh cut grass, it must be nice right now, you know? And, and the smell of the chlorine from the pool and your grandpa's old spice deodorant and that smell of, of new shoes, it just takes you back, doesn't it? I'm sure, like all festivals, the Passover in Jerusalem probably had its smells. Animals for the sacrifice, body odor from the sweaty travelers, food vendors. But that year, there would have been a new smell too. 
As Jesus walked around the city and the temple, teaching and debating and eating and praying, there would come lingering along behind them the rich, bittersweet smell of wealth and extravagance and opulence and death. You can imagine, maybe even, as he goes to eat the Last Supper with his disciples and as he's praying on the Mount of Olives and he's arrested and tried and beaten and flogged and as they hang his body on the cross and take it down to bury it, the scent still lingers. And they must have realized when the smell of that perfume hit their nostrils that this gift had not been a waste, although it had certainly seemed that way at the time. In the year 1904, there was a 16-year-old boy named William Borden who gave his life to Jesus. William Borden was the heir to a fortune, but as he began to grasp the magnitude of what Jesus had done for him, he rejected his wealth. He refused to even buy himself a car, and he began to give hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. But that was not enough. William Borden decided that he was going to throw it all away, and he was going to go and spend his life as a missionary to Muslims in China. And so along the way, he stopped in Egypt to study Arabic before proceeding to the mission field. But before William Borden ever made it to China, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died there in Egypt at the age of 25. And to the eyes of the world, a life like that must look like a waste. But as his tombstone in Egypt still reads today, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Are you living like that? That apart from faith in Christ, there can be no explanation for you. Although he never reached his destination, William Borden's life inspired many men and women to give their lives to missions, and countless souls have been saved through the inspiration of his commitment. And in the Bible that he left behind, William Borden had written these simple words. No reserves. No retreats. No regrets. Listen, I don't know what it is for you. That thing item or idea of great value and worth that, that, that you would just rather not give up. But here's the call. Whatever it is for you, whether you decide to hold on or let go will be the answer to that question. How much is Jesus worth to you? Because the greatest answer and the greatest act of worship that we can give is to waste our lives on him. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. So, will you waste your money on Jesus? Whether you're not giving right now and you need to start or whether you are giving but you're just giving with caution, that reflects how much you think Jesus is worth. Will you waste your kids on Jesus? Will you train them to go wherever God calls them to go, even if it means going into ministry or to the mission field, not because it makes sense to their career counselor or at school or will look good on a resume, but because Jesus is worth it? Will you waste your reputation on Jesus? Will you stand up for what you know is right? Will you say the name of Jesus to your one challenge person? Will you pray not just for them, but with them, not because it won't be awkward or uncomfortable, but because Jesus is worth it? Will you waste your retirement on Jesus? Not because it makes a whole lot of career sense, but because perhaps in this season of unprecedented flexibility in regards to time and money, you could take your kingdom impact to a whole new level. And it won't necessarily be crossing all the items off your bucket list, but it will be displaying to the world that Jesus is worth it.
Will you waste your skills on Jesus? Will you volunteer for VBS? Will you volunteer to lead a D group? And will you start a ministry? Not because it makes good career sense and will add to your 401k, but because Jesus is worth it. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. How much is Jesus worth to you? Let's pray. Worthy are you, the lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and praise. You are worthy of every breath, every word, every thought, every day, every dollar we have to give. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.